Chat Podcast, bringing the best of the HR and talent communities to you. Welcome to another episode of the HR Chat Show. I am your host, Bill Bannum, and today I am joined by Matt Burns, founder of Global HR Collective, and among other things, member and contributor at Forbes Human Resource Council. Matt, welcome to the show. How are you, Bill? I'm great, Matt. And listeners, uh, I've got a bit of a, an exciting announcement to make on this show as well. Uh, following a few chats between the two of us, uh, Matt's going to be coming on as a as a guest host of uh, at least six shows in early 2019. So, Matt, uh, for that reason as well, it, it, I'm very excited to have you on today. Yeah, me as well. Looking forward to being involved with today and the next six shows after that. So firstly, let, let's start by you telling our listeners a bit about your career history prior to founding the Global HR Collective. Yeah, happy to. Uh, long story short, 20 years in the corporate world, 15 in HR. Uh, the last five to seven, Bill, I spent leading large transformational projects, which for those who are on the uh, listening through, understand that probably means in most cases org redesign, org restructuring, uh, and unfortunately, in some cases, job loss. Um, did that for a boat uh, the last five to seven years. Um, really found an inflection point, though. Uh, started asking myself, did that make sense going forward for me? Um, by all traditional measures, if you measure your success in terms of you know position and title and salary and opportunity, I had done very, very well for myself. But ultimately, was not feeling satisfied, was not feeling like what I was doing was making a real difference. And therefore sought to find some better purpose and a better link between my skills and purpose and uh, have found that with the Global HR Collective. Okay, thank you. So now it's your time to tell listeners a bit about the Global HR Collective. But what is it? Uh, What's the mission? And how does it help those in and around HR? Yeah, great question. Um, So the Global HR Collective has a singular mission, Bill. Uh, We're going to raise a million dollars for charity in five years to support causes related to mental health advocacy and women entrepreneurs. Uh, And the reason those two causes for me are really important, uh, on the mental health advocacy side, I have been surrounded by mental health issues most of my life. Um, And whether it's family or friends or myself, certainly have seen it touch people um, in a professional context, in a personal context. And I think it's a conversation that needs to be had more often. I think we need more people discussing it. It has a huge impact in society more broadly, but certainly in a business context. Um, So for that reason, I, I really believe in that cause. On the women entrepreneur piece, um, I don't want to make a political statement, but here's what I'll say. Uh, The state of the world affairs right now to me is is not, in all cases, operating at optimum capacity. I think we're moving to a more global economy and a global way of living. And I believe that, therefore, decisions and the narrative needs to be uh, a a diverse narrative. And right now, I don't believe that it fully is. Uh, And as a result, I think that starts with women. Um, and I believe that uh, the Global HR Collective can help us achieve that. Um, more In a more smaller context, I would say, is my professional career, as I mentioned, has predominantly been in HR. Uh, and that means that I've had a great opportunity to work with women leaders all around the world. And I've seen time and time again them um, struggle in a corporate context, uh, either because of barriers that they place on themselves or uh, barriers that organizations have placed on them structurally. Uh, and therefore, I'm evangelizing and advocating for changes in those areas so that we can have those people participate in the economy and therefore in the broader social context in that conversation. Um, how it relates to the HR profession um, is in, in the context of this conversation really starts from a basic premise of 
what I mentioned earlier, which is I think that business in and in the in the traditional form of it is struggling right now to find its place. Um, I think in a lot of cases it's systemically broken. Um, and I think that HR in a lot of cases is complicit in watching it get to that point and has an opportunity and a mandate and some cases a responsibility to help organizations transform. And we're not doing that. Um, now, whether that is um, a function of, I put things bill in kind of economic terms. So on the demand side, it's what companies want from HR. And there is a degree of double speak that occurs. Uh, what leaders in the public say about what they want from their HR departments, and what they actually ask from us in private in some cases is different. Um, but additionally, I don't, I just think that the, the traditional view of the HR function is that we are a defense. So we are there to mitigate risk. We are there to transact administration. And when it comes to the elements of strategy or brand or revenue generation, HR is kind of an afterthought. Um, so I think we have some work to do in terms of redefining what the global HR profession can be. Uh, and in doing so, I know that we'll create demand for products and services that don't currently exist or exist in smaller amounts today. Uh, so on the supply side, I think we have some work to do with the global HR profession in general in positioning us and readying us and reskilling us in some cases for the new economy and for the new ways of doing business. Uh, we are moving to a more agile way of working. We are using technology more often, and we're certainly using data more often. And I think that still is a gap in skills and competencies in a large number of HR professionals. So the Global HR Collective is meant to do two things, address the demand concerns in terms of what people want from HR and the supply concerns in terms of what HR can provide to those individuals. Okay, thank you. Uh, you mentioned a moment ago uh, that there are there are some barriers uh, still existing for, uh, for for women in leadership positions and, and, and women in entrepreneurial positions, uh, structural barriers, mm. I think you mentioned. Uh, can you can you offer a few examples of, of what you've seen there? Yeah, easy one is just the, the basic core schedule, the nine to five schedule, um, the view of, you know, having, for lack of a better term, bums and seats and having to have somebody in an office five days a week. Um, we are dealing, and I see this, I've seen this as a practitioner, you are working in family situations where people are not only caring for children, but sometimes their parents or other loved ones. So they're almost sandwiched in between those two or three generations. Um, and that means that asking someone to sit at a desk from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday to Friday is very difficult in a very agile, quick-moving world where work and life are becoming increasingly integrated. Um, and in the case of women, that often affects them disproportionately more than men. There is a societal expectation around women in terms of caregiving, in terms of how they show up in family settings where there's children involved um, that are not placed on men. Um, and therefore, the constructs of business and the way things are done are skewed to being present is akin to providing value. So if you have somebody who works 10, 12, 15 hours a day, in a lot of, in a lot of entities, they're seen as being more valuable than somebody who may have to cut out at three o'clock to go pick up their kids from daycare. Um, and I think that plays from a structural perspective more to the advantage of men than women um, because of the expectations that that takes place and because of general family dynamics that occur, at least in the workplaces that I've been part of. That's one. Um, second thing is, and this is purely a objective, um, sorry, this is more of a subjective comment, Bill. I don't have any scientific backing to you know, support this. I just have you know, the 20 years I have in the corporate world. In my experience, um, women tend to undervalue themselves men tend to overvalue themselves and their contributions to business. And how that shows up in a practical context is, is I have talked to a number of 
really talented, intelligent, purposeful women leaders who struggle to even apply for jobs that are lateral transfers because they feel like they have some things to learn before they're ready for that job, or they feel like they can't dedicate themselves and commit themselves and all of themselves to that position, so they prefer at this point to let that thing pass by. When I talk to some of the male colleagues in similar positions, I don't see the same resistance and reluctance. So there's almost an uh, almost a we will you know, we'll learn on the job, we'll learn on the fly, we'll take the risk, and everything will fall into place. And I may not have the skills and abilities today to do that job, but I know that with your support and with this opportunity, that I'll build them. Um, and that, in some cases, translates into more opportunities for men than women. Um, and uh, I think from that perspective, it's an issue we need to address around imposter syndrome and around what opportunity means and, and better defining um, what what a career means. I mean, in every job I've ever had, Bill, I've never accepted a job that I was, quote unquote, fully qualified for. There's always been some learning along with it, whether it's contextual, whether it's geographic, whether it's cultural, there's always some learning that has to take place. So I think it's important that organizations telegraph that to their internal, but also the external market to say, hey, there's an opportunity. Um, and we, in this case, are looking for this particular skill set. If you fill the vast majority of the check, of, check the vast majority of these boxes, let's have a conversation. Let's see if we can maybe even in some cases adapt the job to fit the individual. I mean, Bill, I've done this a number of occasions where I put a job out into the, um, the space and say, hey, I'm looking for X role. And I meet somebody that I go, holy smokes, this person has, they fill about 70% of the job requirement, but they bring something so special and so unique, which was not part of the original plan. I'm actually going to cater and tailor this job to that special talent. Um, and I don't see enough of that occurring, Bill, and I think we can do a lot more work in that area. Okay, thank you very much. And uh, listeners, you'll get to enjoy more of uh, Matt's controversial statements and opinions and, and his and his uh, <laughs> insights from his 20 years or 20 plus years uh, in, in the upcoming shows. Um, and by, by the way, um, myself and my team, we, we also have certain views around uh, some of the things you just mentioned there. So, so for example, remote working, for, for example, the importance mm-hmm. of flexible hours. Uh, I, I, I personally believe that gone are the days of a typical nine to five job. And uh, if, mm-hmm. if, you can, if you can prove your mettle while not being in an office, then you're, you're just as valuable as an in-office employee. But that's just my opinion. And this interview is not, uh, is, is not about that. It's about you. So let's continue through. Uh, earlier on, you, you, you sort of alluded to uh, the fact that you kind of became a bit maybe disillusioned with the, the corporate world. What, what, so tell me a bit more about that. Why leave the corporate world behind? Yeah, I don't think the, I don't think the plan I don't think the strategy makes sense anymore. So being in HR, and again, the folks on the listening to this, we're going to appreciate this. You have a unique vantage point in an organization, and that you get to see all nooks and crannies. You get to see it from a very broad lens because, in most organizations, the human resources impact everything. Um, and when I think about the the structure of a publicly traded large Fortune 1000 company, I ask myself, what are they facing right now? And if if we accept that the world is dramatically changing and that technology and globalization are two factors driving that, um, most large organizations are in need to transform themselves to become more nimble and more agile, which runs counter to how businesses were formed and structured and created 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. They were built with a view to scale. They were built with a view to getting to large dominant market positions and then leveraging that dominant market position by throwing your weight around. That no longer works in today's environment where fast-moving competitors can come in and disrupt in a fiscal quarter. Um, and it no longer works in a, in a 
framework where society is expecting more from businesses beyond just what they deliver in products and services, but more how they show up in society, how they show up in politics, how they show up in their beliefs and their core values and how they treat the people, not only their customers, but their employees. Um, and I think from that perspective, I actually feel bad for those large companies because we're asking them to transform themselves on the fly. I've been part of a few of them. It's really hard to turn a vessel that's that large and build the plane while you fly it. And at the same time, satisfy your short-term interests in terms of what your shareholders expect from you. That's the other piece, right, Bill? I mean, your shareholders are expecting quarterly results. And oftentimes, the business has to look at a longer-term strategic lens. So how do you reconcile those two things together? Um, the consequence of that was, as I was being part of and leading restructuring efforts, I got the sense that we weren't actually addressing the root cause of the problem. We were simply rearranging the deck chairs in the Titanic and just limping along quarter by quarter um, and not really making a change that was going to be long lasting, not going to be sustained and certainly not linked to my particular values. I understand that businesses ebb and flow and I'm, I'm happy to help companies transition through that, but I want to feel like it's for something and I want to feel like it's attached to my purpose and my values. And I just, I just didn't feel that anymore. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I, I want to now loop back in on, um, on the conversation that we had near the beginning of the interview here. And, and uh, just to be clear, can you offer uh, just for a minute or two, uh, some, some more information around the, the, the why, what, why, why mental health advocacy and supporting women entrepreneurs? What, why is that so vital? So here's the interesting piece. Uh, you know, I, I've become a social entrepreneur. I'm running a social enterprise. And most of the people that I speak with in business tell me that, that I'm halfway in between two worlds. I'm in between the charitable world and I'm in between the for-profit world. And really at some point I'm going to have to choose that I'm going to have to choose per profit or purpose. I can't have both. So at the core level, Bill, I don't accept that. I don't believe that is a decision I'm going to have to make. I believe that I can live in both of those worlds simultaneously, that you can develop business and grow and scale a large entity on a global stage and also do a lot of good for society simultaneously. So I think that's kind of a, a initial starting point. In the context of, of mental health advocacy and women entrepreneurs, um, those were two causes that for me, I personally connect to, um, you know, as I mentioned with the mental health piece, I've experienced mental health issues myself. I have family members and friends who have suffered with mental illness. I've lost friends to mental illness. Um, and for me, that's a conversation that is simply not happening enough. It is an epidemic. And I think when we look back at this period of time in society and we understand the, the true costs of the increasing rates of anxiety, the increasing rates of depression, um, and people's link to the broader societal context, I think we're going to realize how much of an economic impact it had in addition to a societal impact. So for that reason, I think it's a conversation that needs to happen. Secondly, when it comes to the women entrepreneur piece, as I mentioned, I don't think we're having a balanced conversation. And I think that the first place with which to balance it is involving more women in conversations. But I don't have a lot of faith, Bill, in traditional institutions involving that problem. So I look to government and I look to you know, other in large entities and I say to myself, are we going to be able to move the needle fast enough given the rate of change in the current society and current economics? And then my answer is, I don't believe that we, do, we are going to see that change fast enough. And I think the way to just enact change quickly is to use business in the economy to drive that. Uh, and the reason I say that, Bill, is because I look at around the world, and again, I'm not making a political statement, but if you look around geopolitically, we see examples in a lot of, quote unquote, first world countries where people are trading moralities for e economics. 
Um, and I think that is a function of society and a function of, of who we are as a species is that if you can't put food on the table, moralities become a luxury. Um, and I think that that personally, I think that's a shame, but I understand it. Um, and I think that, so for in order for us to address the, um, the model and the conversation and, uh, to make an impact, the best way to go about doing that is to make an impact in economic terms and then drive that agenda forward and a link values to it. So that's why I say before, I don't believe you have to separate purpose um, and profit. I believe actually you need to have both if we're going to transform what we're seeing right now in society. Okay. Now uh, you have released a few videos recently in one of them, uh, in your words, you, you said you're going to use business to narrow the gap between the privileged mm -hmm. few and the, and the deserving many. What, what, what did you mean by that? And how on earth are you going to do it, go about doing it? <laughs> the second part is a lot more difficult to answer than the first. Uh, the first part is, I, again, I, I look at business and I think that you look at whether you look at studies from the World Economic Forum or, you know, what have you, the income disparity and the income gap between those who have and those who have not is increasing. Uh, and it's increasing in a lot of jurisdictions around the world and it's increasing in a global context. So if you look at, you know, and I hate, and I'm not a huge fan of this term, Bill, but like winners and losers, in economic terms, very few people are winning right now. And as we go through, quote unquote, the fourth industrial revolution, we're going to see a lot more people be displaced, a lot more reskilling, and we're going to see disruption occurring in highly technical or highly manual skilled roles. I just think that in the economic context right now, we're at serious risk of seeing people displaced economically and therefore in society. And as I think about the issues that for me are important around mental health advocacy and women entrepreneurs, I see those two things at risk. So not only do I see a risk of, of not seeing progress against those two objectives, I actually see erosion in those places if we don't take significant systemic changes to address that problem. And while I'm not doing this, this is not one of the driving roles of why I've launched the Global HR Collective, there very much is a template that I'm trying to at least develop experientially and demonstrate to my friends and colleagues and people around the world that you can have both profit and purpose. Uh, and we're going to show them how we can get this done because I'm essentially going to use build the playbook that I've built over 20 years of operating in the world's largest companies and invert the models so that it faces externally. Um, and I believe we can scale, we can employ the best practices of um, the corporate or private sector, if you will, and, and deliver, use that to deliver a lot of real good. So um, I think from me, the, the, that is where that starts from. How we do that, um, not to make this about myself, but here's how I do that. Because the question I get most um, in the context of that, of that comment is, how are you going to do all this? So, you know, you've, got a, you've, you've laid out a pretty big mandate for yourself. You're living in Vancouver. You have set a million-dollar target. And now you've talked about transforming the global HR profession and that business and, and work is broken. That's, that's not unambitious. So how, where are you going to start and how are you going to get there? And how are you going to do it in five years? Um, and, um, you know, what skills do you have that basically justify you making that claim? Here's what happens, Bill. So, I mean, I guess from the first thing is I went through a personal transformation as well over the last two years where I was an individual who was very selfish, who was very much focused on what I could get for myself. Um, and, you know, that came with consequences to people around me, people that I worked with, personal relationships. I'm no longer willing to make that trade off. So I made a complete 180 with my value structure, whereas I no longer anchor my own self-worth in the things that I've been able to personally achieve. I'm not materially driven and I'm not driven by ego. 
Rather, what inspires me and what gets me excited is a couple things. One is the opportunity to use the skills and gifts and passions that I have to influence an agenda and a mandate that I think is very human focused and is needed in the current state of affairs right now. And that's why the social enterprise to me was really exciting. Um, so that's, that's one part of the conversation. Um, the second part of it is I get really excited about um, the opportunity to use the platform and the people that I work with in the community to really drive change in a global context. Because I'm not materially driven and because I'm not driven by ego, I look to collaborate everywhere. Um, and I don't feel like I need a dominant position in a project or on a company or in a conversation. I just want to help people have success. And the Global HR Collective is my vehicle to do that. So in addition to evangelizing thought leadership and developing new business streams and providing employment opportunities, we're going to use that platform to help organizations scale that are doing good things on this planet, either providing them with resources or help or support. Um, call it what you want. Call it an incubator. Call it a, a safe haven. Call it a place, a sounding board. But we're going to play a, a bunch of different roles with a particular emphasis on enforcing and reinforcing and supporting and enabling women entrepreneurs. So I'll be looking for over the next several years opportunities to connect with either existing entrepreneurs who are women who are growing their businesses or potentially talent that hasn't found the right purpose or opportunity and trying to connect them to that again to move that agenda forward. So through collaboration, through partnership, through teamwork, um, through knowledge sharing, um, that's how we're going to be able to get to the million dollar target. That's how we're going to have the impact. If I tried to do it all myself and I was focused on what's in it for Matt, my impact would be much less, uh, be less, much less in terms of impact, but also in terms of how far it reached. Um, and that's why I've taken the approach I've taken. Well, I reckon it's going to go very well. And I reckon within a year or so, you'll be, you'll be upping that target. It won't be a million. It will be a billion, maybe, Matt. But uh, <laughs> that, that would be another interview, Easy. right? Easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, um, I mean, the five-year the five target was um, – uh, yeah. It's conservative. I, I get that. Um, having said that, it's a million dollars. So I, we still got to find it. We still got to work with it. We still got to move through this channel. And uh, I'm optimistic. I have a lot. I'm an optimist, Bill, by, by nature. And I think there's a lot of good in this world. And I think that once people understand that what we're doing is beyond concept, that we're actually delivering. And once we start to actually show the fruits of our labor, I think it's going to attract more goodwill and more people who are interested. And I actually think the million dollars, to your point, is, is, a, is a subtitle in a very long story. Yeah, spoiler alert, once we hit the $1 million, we are going to jack the target up at some point, and we are going to expand our influence because for me now, this is my life's work. I mean, this is not a gimmick. This is not a, a content marketing ploy for a one-year period of time. This is what I'm going to do the rest of my life, um, and people can believe that or not believe that. I'll just play this interview back five years from now and see where I'm at. I'm going to be in the same places doing the same things. I may show up a bit differently in terms of how we do things, but why we do it is not going to change, and um, I'm looking forward to that next you know, 15, 20 years of my career. Matt, you're not, you're not going to believe this, but we are already pretty much at the end of this interview. Before we wrap things up, one last question for you. Uh, sure. This one should, should be pretty straightforward. That, that is, uh, how can our listeners connect with you and how can they learn more about Global HR Collective? Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, first thing is I live on LinkedIn. That's where you and I met, Bill. It's where I spend most of my time in social media. So while my Instagram game is not very good, my LinkedIn game is really good. So if you want to reach out to me on LinkedIn, please do so. Uh, I welcome any direct messages. I've configured my account in such a way that any messages from anybody is free. So just by all means, send me a note directly. Um, if you think there's an opportunity for us to collaborate, specifically do reach out. 
Uh, you can also email me at matt at globalhrcollective.org. Um, and that's where I'll be, uh, my email as well. Welcome any conversations from folks who have uh, something to say or some value to add or believe there's some opportunity for us to collaborate in the future. Wonderful. Well, that just leaves me to say for today, Matt Burns, thank you very much for being a guest on the HR Chat Show. Thanks. Thanks, Bill. And listeners, as always, until next time, and next time will be in 2019, uh, happy holidays and happy working. Thank you for listening to the HR Chat Podcast, brought to you by the HR Gazette. 